it's good stuff here. Uh, one announcement today. Today, uh, Aaron is on vacation, camping somewhere. Um, I think at, I don't know. I'm not going to make a guess. I'm not even going to guess. But uh, we have Kyle Rodriguez here who's going to preach this morning, and I'm going to let him do more introductions, but he's been here several times, and he's awesome. So uh, excited to have you, Kyle. Um, before we continue in worship, let's kind of do our normal thing, and let's just take a couple seconds, get ourselves centered into a moment of worship. Maybe you want to put your palms up and be in kind of a receiving posture because we're hoping to receive from the Spirit today. I encourage you to try to slow down your breathing. Maybe take a deep inhale and hold it, and then exhale it slowly. When uh, The word spirit, when God breathed the spirit, that's the same word for breath. And so we, there's a connection between our breathing and our spiritual life. So we want to try to in, engage that as best as we can. So I encourage you to take a couple slow breaths. Maybe use that as a time of prayer. Maybe you're breathing in, uh, breathing in the spirit, breathing in God's presence. And then as you exhale, you're saying your prayer. Lord, be with me or help me to see you more, whatever it may be. But let's take a couple seconds and, and get ourselves centered for worship. Will you stand and worship with us?
storm surrounding me, let it break at your name still. Call the sea to still, the rage in me to still, every wave at your name. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkest tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus. Call these bones to Call these lungs to Oh, my God. 
light makes darkness tremble. You guys can be seated. But if you are a kid who is in preschool, is it just preschool? Just preschool today. Any preschoolers who want to head off to kids' church, you can go hang out with Sam right over there by that door. Hi, Sam. fun guys as you go we want to bless you we just want to say may the love and grace of our Lord Jesus be with you and for the rest of us let's continue in a time of worship and a time of prayer let's go before our God and lay our hearts before him Jesus truly you do make the darkness tremble you are the light that shines in the darkness you are our Savior who meets us wherever we are you meet us on our good days and rejoice with us, and you meet us in our brokenness, on our bad days, and you comfort us. Even when we aren't fully aware of what you're doing, you're there and you meet us. So Lord, we ask that by your spirit we may see you more and more. By your spirit may we be more aware of what you're doing in our lives, what you're doing in the lives of our family, what you're doing in in the life of this church and what you're doing in our community and world. Jesus, we pray that watershed will be an image of you to the world. We pray that as we leave this place, that people will see the love that you have, the love that you show to the world through us. May we reflect that. We know that we as individuals and even as a church, we, we have our our ugly spots, our problems, but you are perfect love. And so may that be what is shown to everyone else. Shine through us, Lord. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, worship team. Good morning. My name is Kyle Rodriguez, like Zach said. I'm, I'm here with my wife, Ashley. We have been here a few times. Uh, this time, we also brought our uh, three-month-old son, Judah, um, who's a cutie. He's pretty great. Uh, but you might hear him throughout the sermon. Uh, he's, he's a talker, like his dad, uh, and he's, he, he enjoys church. So we're glad for that. That's a good sign, I think. Uh, we are excited to be here with you this morning. Like I said, we've been here a few times, gotten to worship with you, gotten to worship with Fusion, and, and every time we have been just so blessed by your presence and your kindness and your, your welcome to us, and I'm sure that will be the case today as well. Uh, a little bit about us. Uh, I'm uh, a graduate of Calvin Seminary uh, last year, and we are in the process of uh, planting a church on the east side of the state in the Brighton area. And so as we come to worship with you this morning, we were so delighted to hear that you're going through the book of Acts. The book of Acts, of course, a, a transitionary book to see how the church is built up in light of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so the book of Acts, seeing all these new churches being planted and, and, and uh, Christians being brought to life from death through the power of the gospel, this is what we want to see as we go and we plant Union Church in Brighton, Michigan. And I could talk for a long time about Union Church. I won't this morning because we have a wonderful piece of text to get through and I want to make sure we can do justice to it. But if you want to hear anything more about Union Church, please feel free to ask because I love to talk about it. But with that being said... I want to encourage you to go ahead, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be walking through Acts chapter 9 this morning, at least as much, much of it as we can. And Acts chapter 9 is 
includes the story of Saul's conversion. Saul, also known as the Apostle Paul, uh, those two names are just, Saul is, is Hebrew and, and Paul is Greek, uh, not necessarily a transformation to Paul after his conversion, but you might hear me say either of them this morning, Saul or Paul, so I hope you know we're talking about the same person. But let's go ahead and walk into Acts chapter 9, maybe we're up here, maybe not, that's okay, we don't need it. Uh, Acts chapter 9, we're going to start with verse 1 in Acts chapter 9. Actually, before we do that, would you mind praying with me really quick? Dear Lord, we are grateful to be able to be here this morning. Um, even amidst a beautiful day and a Memorial Day weekend, and there might be a part of us that wishes we were out on a lake or on a campground with Aaron somewhere. But we are here, Lord, and we get to worship you with your people. What a blessing that is. Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us that joy that only your spirit can give us as we worship you, as we see your face more clearly. Give us that joy this morning as we worship you together. Help us to see your face clearly in the text. Lord, we ask that uh, you would stop me from saying anything that might contradict your word and contradict your gospel. We ask that you would keep our eyes, our eyes attuned to your face and our ears attuned to your truth, Lord. We love you, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. All right, we're going to stop right there. Notice a couple things. First, Notice how evocative this language is that describes Saul. Saul was still breathing out, breathing out murderous threats. These, these threats towards the followers of Jesus are, are kind of a part of who Saul is right now. He is just breathing them out. And he's not even, sometimes I think about the story of Saul and I think about him just being, you know, one of many Jewish uh, leaders who were intent on persecuting the church. But Notice how Saul is kind of acting a little bit independently here, right? He is taking initiative. He is the one who goes to the high priests, asks for permission to go and to, to find Christians who have fled Jerusalem because of persecution and to bring them back. See, in, in this time in the ancient world, uh, with the Roman Empire having taken over a lot of the area, uh, the Roman Empire gave uh, special authority to some of the Jewish leaders, specifically the high priests, to be able to actually have extradition powers to, to people who would flee to other nations. And so that's what Paul is asking for here. He asks the high priest, sign these papers so I can go to Damascus and get their temple leaders to help me in bringing these Christians back to Jerusalem for persecution. And this high priest would have been Caiaphas, the same high priest who led the murderous plot to kill Christ, the same high priest who said, it is better for one man to die than for a whole nation to perish. It's that same Caiaphas who now signs the papers for Saul to go and continue and build on that persecution. So much hatred that is present here. Let's continue 
on. Uh, this is Damascus. Really quickly, uh, Damascus would have been right up here to the right, uh, about a six-day journey from Jerusalem. So it's about six days that uh, Saul is, is walking, probably on foot, to Damascus. And what happens during this journey? As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So, this seems big. What, what's, what's happened here? What, what did Saul just experience? This is not, was, was, was this, you know, a, a, an epileptic seizure, a hallucination of some kind? Paul emphatically claims no. No, this, this wasn't just an, an incidence. This is, this is an uh, encounter with the living God. You see, in the Bible, you have a few different encounters like this where, where God would appear visibly to people. We, we call this theophanies, appearances of God. And, and when one of these appearances would happen, there would always be a few kind of common factors, common things that would occur. There would be a bright light would be one of the common things. Uh, in fact, the word that is used here, that word flashed uh, in Greek, is the same, comes from the same word as the word lightning in Greek. So this is a powerful flash of light. Uh, the response of people encountering the presence of God would almost always be falling down, falling down on their faces, on their knees, in the presence of the living God. And then a third thing with a theophany that often happened is that there would be a, some kind of heavenly voice, and that voice would often come with a, with a charge or a command as well as like a, a personal greeting. And that's what you hear, see here is, Saul, Saul, this voice from heaven cries out. And so as as a good Jew who knows his Bible, who knows how these things happen, Saul has no question about what is going on here. This isn't a ghost appearing to him. This isn't a delusion. It's not some trick of Satan and his angels. There's something heavenly here, something divine. And yet at the same time, it's unexpected. Because Saul thought that he knew the Lord. He, he, he thought that he knew who God was, and yet there's something here that he doesn't recognize in this holy encounter. And so he asks, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. So, couple things to consider here. Number one, Jesus is alive. This is the central claim of these followers who, who Paul had been persecuting, who he'd been trying to kill and destroy, and here he is now face to face with the risen Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, when, when Saul tells his testimony, he talks about he actually sees Christ. 
And now his world is turned upside down. He's alive, and, and this changes everything for Paul. But the second thing that's critical here that I want to make sure we, we see is that Jesus is not only alive and reigning in heaven, but Jesus is actually present on earth through the lives of his people. He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I've heard this interpreted sometimes like this, that, that Jesus identifies so closely with his people, with his followers, that when they suffer, he feels so much empathy that it's kind of like him being persecuted. I don't even, I don't think that's quite enough. I, I don't think that really gets us the full the full meaning of what Christ is saying here, that kind of that makes it seem like Jesus identifies with us in the same way that we identify with a sports team, right? I, I have been, um, I've been an Indianapolis Colts fan for my whole life. My whole family was. I don't know why. I don't remember how we got to be that way, but we are. Uh, and as a child who was a diehard fan of a sports team, I experienced my fair share of being elated when my team won and crushed when they were defeated. It was a lot of tears in our household growing up. Because when you're that invested in a team, right, even if you're just watching from afar, you feel like you're a part of them. It's part of your identity. And, and, And the Colts were my team, and so my mood rose and fell along with them. But friends... Jesus does not just watch from afar and feel like he's a part of our team. Jesus has actually entered into this life and bled for us and suffered for us and died for us and has risen in order to actually unite us to himself. And so now his spirit actually dwells within us if we have been given new life in faith. And so we call this we call this doctrine as a church union with Christ. That as his people, we have actually been united with him in a real and effective way. So his resurrection is our resurrection and his righteousness is our righteousness. We are his body, the word says. In fact, Paul himself later on comes to to recognize that and he says this in a beautiful way. He says, "I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when Jesus says, Saul, it is me, it is me, the one whom you have been persecuting, he really means it. Jesus Christ has felt the blows, the shame, the pain, the suffering, as if it was his own. Saul is not just a deadly enemy of Christians, he's an enemy of Christ. And so, one thing, one big thing I just want to make sure we take away from this is that Jesus identifies with his persecuted people because he has united them to himself. Now, I'd imagine at this point, Saul is probably pretty shaken up. <laughs> he's, he's seen the risen Jesus, the one who isn't, clearly, he's not, he's not just alive, but he's divine. He's been told that he's been persecuting this living God-man. His sight has been taken away. 
And there's, there's no indication of what's coming next for Saul. Is it judgment? Is it persecution? Is it eternal blindness? So for three days, it says he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. They must have been filled with uncertainty and regret and repentance and, and wonder. So let's continue on. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Might have flipped one here. There we go. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. He answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I love, I love that ending there. Something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Not only did Saul regain his physical sight here, but he he gains spiritual sight. The world looks totally different to Saul now that he has seen the risen Christ. Once you've seen Jesus, you can't help but see everything in light of Jesus. And immediately, Paul goes and was baptized. He's baptized in the name of the one who he persecuted into the community of believers who he had persecuted. It is total and utter reconciliation between Christ and his enemy between his enemy and his people. And then, I I love this, then he eats, and he regains his strength. Now, I imagine, again, after three days of blindness, of fasting, of tearful prayers, probably filled with desperation and, 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 and frank realization of the weight of his past mistakes, I imagine that after three days of that, the taste of food filling his belly, that must have been heavenly. You know what a good meal tastes like when you're famished. 
the, the physical satisfaction that Paul must have felt here in this moment. And, and friends, that, that just would have been a, a small, small shadow of, of the mental and emotional and spiritual satisfaction that he was feeling in that moment as he encountered the grace of Jesus. Think about how he must have felt when he heard those words from Ananias. The first thing Ananias says, brother Saul. This is a disciple of Jesus who, who, who Saul had been murdering. And after three days of wondering what the Lord had in store for him, the first thing Paul hears out of this man's mouth is, brother, Saul. And Ananias goes on to say, Jesus himself has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So not only is the Lord's, you know, kind of temporary chastising of Saul, this blindness, not only is that taken away, but he now gives Saul a gift that he didn't even realize he needed, new life in the Spirit as Christ fills him. And again, this, everything changes for Saul in this moment. And really, everything changes for Ananias too. You can't blame Ananias for being skeptical of Saul. It's, this is what we do as people. We're skeptical of our enemies. Republicans are skeptical of Democrats. Democrats are skeptical of Republicans. Palestinians are skeptical of Israelis. Israelis are skeptical of Palestinians. Wolverines are skeptical of Spartans. We are afraid of people who might be enemies. And that fear keeps us from being vulnerable, from actually going to them and, and opening up and, and seeking their good because it means we might be in danger. But friends, the business of the Lord is turning enemies into friends. Which means he's in the business of turning your enemies into friends. Not, not just friends, but brothers and sisters. He's not only committed to turning your enemies into friends. Brothers and sisters, he is committed to turning you into a friend. Because it's not just Paul and, and those who, who visibly persecuted the church, who have been enemies of Christ, it's, it's each and every one of us. You know, sometimes we, we think about our sin as if it was just this small inconvenience that the Lord had to overcome. But if it was so bad that Christ had to die a bloody, suffering death on your behalf, be sure that you truly once were an enemy of the God of the universe. This is what Paul says. Paul comes to, to recognize this. He says this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says to the Romans in, in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
perhaps for a good person. One would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to say, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's the same thing that Jesus says in in John 15. He says, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And he goes on to say, I have called you friends. Brothers and sisters, do you see what Jesus has done for you? He has called you friend. What he did for Paul, he has done for you. We were hostile, we have been reconciled. We were enemies, we are friends. We were blind, and now the scales have fallen from our eyes. We were starving, but now we have partaken in his body and are strengthened. This is what God does by the work of Christ. He turns graves into gardens, mourning to dancing, death to life, enemies to friends. This is the God we worship. So, make sure we see this this morning. That all of Christ's people were once enemies, but have been reconciled to him. We have been united to him by his life, death, and resurrection. He turns enemies into friends. So what happens next? What does that lead to? Let's continue Saul's story. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once, at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? among those who call on this name, and and hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. We see that same skepticism that was in Ananias. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And I love this. This is how our passage ends this morning. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Saul was saved for a purpose. 
And we saw that back when, when Jesus spoke to Ananias. What did he say? He said, he is a chosen instrument to carry his name, carry Jesus' name to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is what Saul's purpose has been. And right away, Saul does it. Right away. And of course, that, that radical 100-degree turn transformation amazes people. All those who heard him were astonished. What also comes, very, comes true very quickly is that Saul suffers for the name of Christ, just as Christ had told Ananias. Because Saul proclaims the name of Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, the risen Savior, the Jewish people plot to kill him twice. He's forced to flee two different cities. This is all within five verses of his transformation, of his conversion. The one who once breathed threats and murder toward God's people is now subject to those threats and murder because he has been united to God's people. Suffering, friends, is an unfortunate reality of being united to Christ. And, and Jesus himself predicted this, right? He, he tells his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's hard. That's a hard truth. But Jesus goes on to say, take heart heart, for I have overcome the world. And so, years later, when Paul reflects on this life of suffering, he says he can rejoice in his suffering. And he says he can rejoice for two reasons. He says he can rejoice for the sake of Christ, because Christ's power has been made perfect in his weakness, and he trusts that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. But he also says one other reason why he can rejoice in his sufferings. In Colossians 1, 24, right after he talks about how we were hostile to God and have been reconciled, right after that he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Do you see what's happening here to Paul? Paul was an enemy of Christ. He persecuted the body of Christ. And now he's rejoicing because he gets the chance to suffer for the sake of that body. Christ has turned an enemy into a friend and then used that friend to turn more enemies into more friends. To build up his church by suffering for their sake. And you see that back at the end of our story here in Acts. The church enjoys a time of peace. is strengthened. It lives in the fear of the Lord. And is encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And grows in numbers. Friends, if the Lord did this in Paul for that reason, he has done the same thing in you for that same reason reason. He has turned you from an enemy to a friend, so you can do this same work. You might not have the same call that Saul did. You might not have the same call that Ashley and I have as we go to plant a church, 
but you have become a friend of Christ, a friend of God, that you might participate in the peace of the church, that you might uh, help the church be built up and strengthened and encouraged, that you might help the church walk in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Spirit, and be multiplied. So two quick application points, and then I'll let you go this morning. Number one, take heart. You may feel pressed by enemies. I I don't know where each and every one of you are, but I know where I've been. I know where my friends and family are. You might feel as if a neighbor is just an enemy of Christ, will be completely hostile to you and to the gospel. You might feel as if one of your children is an enemy, is captivated by the world and and angry toward the church. You may feel as if you have no safe co-workers around you. You may be discouraged every day, having no idea how to really live faithfully in that environment. But friends, what does our God do? He turns enemies into friends. Your child, your coworker, your crotchety neighbor, none of them are too far gone. It may not happen today. It may not happen tomorrow, this month, or this year. But our God is the one who works mighty miracles. Just earlier this, this month, I, I talked to a, a missionary from Nigeria, a CRC missionary who uh, has witnessed sex traffickers come to Christ simply because the people who they were seeking ransom from kept texting them about the gospel. Enemies have been turned into friends. This is what our God does. But one other point of application, and that is, the reason the Lord has reconciled you to himself, has made you into a friend, is to participate in that mission to reconcile more enemies to himself. And so you participate in this work by building up the church and by sharing the gospel to those who are far gone, by seeking this reconciliation yourselves. You are the body of Christ. And as his Holy Spirit works in you, he will do this. He will turn enemies into friends and he will turn those former enemies and use them to glorify his name and build up the church. It's this beautiful, redemptive cycle of Christ's work in the church, and it's not going to stop just because American culture seems less and less Christian. So get out there and participate. What, what is stopping you from that this morning? It can't be because people are too hostile, that they're too far gone, that they're enemies. Christ will bring reconciliation. It can't be that you're too weak For in that weakness, Christ will show his strength. We are his body, brothers and sisters. He has already done great work in us. And now he wants to do so in others through us. So let's get to work. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we are enemies who have been turned to friends. What a blessing it is, Lord, to be a friend of God. Lord, let us not grow numb to that reality, to the work that you have done. 
And let us not grow numb to the work that you have called us to, the mighty and miraculous and impossible work that you make possible through your blood, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us. We ask that you would give us strength, that you would give us boldness in that, Lord. For that work cannot be done without you. It is done in you alone. We praise your name and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You stand and sing with us as we sing praise to the one who turns us from enemies into friends. Who invites us into his work to join with him.
friends. <clears throat> this morning we have had a chance to celebrate the gospel together, to sing the gospel together, and now we are sent out to the world with that gospel. So receive this benediction from the face of the one who has turned you into a friend this morning. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace. Go in that peace this morning.